Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kendall Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Um, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Azure Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Evan Baslick, and we are recording today on August 31st, um, episode number 437. Um, we'll be talking with James Tabor of the Azure um, Customer Experience Customer Reliability Engineering Team uh, about the low-code automation that he's doing to help run. Um, uh, he's the same team as me to actually run our business with some of this low-code automation, like actual Azure Incident Management. Um, you know, I've got Kale and Sajit with me here as well, and obviously, you know, our special guest James. Um, but before we get to James, um, let's talk about news. Sure, I'll go first. This is Kale. I got uh, four of them here today, so I'll go kind of quickly here. Uh, the first one is around uh, Grafana. So for anybody who's a fan of uh, the Grafana dashboards and uh, telemetry type tools, um, you might not be aware, but we have a, a managed Grafana that's now generally available. Um, so this was just announced along with some new connections and integrations for Azure. Um, the ones that stood out here were like things like Azure Monitor. Um, so Personally, I find when working with Grafana, like building those dashboards is probably the hardest part, right? Like once you have those things built and then you have your connections, it's relatively easy to get these things connected. So uh, having some new dashboards out of the box built for Azure Monitor is awesome. Um, and there's some, some stuff with load balancing for the network insights, um, other you know kind of features in there for container apps and things like that. Pretty cool stuff. Um, the second one, I feel like I should work for these guys because I always bring it up on the podcast with the cost management updates. We need to have um, them on. I don't know that we've ever had cost management folks on the on the show. I we think should. a long long ways back, they weren't even called cost management. I think, yeah. then, you know, like, but uh, yeah, I always bring this up because they they're pretty uh, diligent about you know publishing their updates, um, and it seems pretty much monthly. Um, but they have some new stuff out here. A couple that stood out for me for. Uh, the enterprise specifically were things like the MCA billing uh, for your Microsoft customer agreements. Um, you're able to kind of associate those tenants in there now and, and manage them through there. Um, whole slew of new things around the desktop as a service. Um, there's a there's actually like a labs now too. I didn't realize this. Maybe I missed this a while back, but there's a cost management labs now where you can basically um, you know get pre-beta or like beta releases of new things that are coming up so you can apply uh, to be part of those. Um, and there's a whole list of like things that are in those previews, um, which is pretty cool. So they're, they're actually growing quite a bit over there in the uh, cost management space. Um, two other ones, one was around, um, this was associated with Mobile World Congress, but the mobile space. Um, this year we announced um, the Azure private 5G core, uh, which is part of the, the mech, the private mech um, that's part of Azure uh, for the edge. So this works with uh, Azure Stack um, for these private network enterprises and, and mobile operators that are using these. Um, you know, growing like crazy. Um, lots of quotes in here from even Satya about how you know this is basically allowing the extension to these local markets from the cloud. 
Um, so the cloud's actually helping grow the local market uh, as, a, as a result of these offerings being there. It's pretty cool. And the last one I had was around Azure Virtual Machines for this Amper Ultra ARM-based processors, basically, or GA. Um, I think we announced that a while back, but they will be GA. Actually, we're recording this on August 31st. Um, they're slated to be GA on September 1st um, in 10 regions, I believe. Um, and these are you know, cost-effective kind of ARM processors that can be used. Different SKU numbers, I'll have to see what they are. I think they're called like DP and EP. Yeah, DP, S, and LS, and then the EPs. Um, so take a look at those. Uh, they have various sizes that are available there for these uh, ARM-based processors. That's it. Nice, Sajit, you wanna hit yours? <clears throat> yeah, I got three of them. Uh, I mean, I know we have quite a few updates this week, but three that I was kind of excited about. Uh, one is uh, with regards to Cosmos DB. You know that uh, sometimes if you uh, make queries in Cosmos DB, they can be expensive, right? Cosmos DB charges you for uh, how uh, complex the query is and how, uh, how how many reads it had to do. They have them. They call them RUs, and uh, some of those reads could be quite expensive. So you don't want to do them over and over again. So typically, uh, applications will do those expensive reads, and they will then set up an ex, you know some some sort of caching mechanism. Well, now uh, Azure Cosmos DB has that uh, cache built into it, right? So they have something called the Azure Cosmos DB Integrated Cache, and it's a, it's an option that you can turn on uh, uh, for for a little bit more cost. You get this special front end which caches some of the uh, some of your queries, and this way, when you make a request uh, the second time, uh, you know there's a cache hit. It just comes out of the cache, and you. And you oh, so that doesn't use. hit your R are you it, at that it does point? Not hit your oh, R I didn't get that connection. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. that's nice. So, I mean, uh, you know, so there's a small charge for the front end, this thing, but, you know, that's jump change, you know, compared to how much you might pay on Cosmos DB costs. So, mm -hmm. and so that's a, a new feature that is now generally available. Uh, the second one is on, uh, you know, the, the blob trigger for functions, uh, which is something that has always been around, but uh, it, it works in a polling mechanisms, you know, so the function polls the blob, blob trigger, the blob that you want to trigger on, and sometimes that can be a delay in that. Now what they've done is they've connected the blob trigger to event grid and event grid to functions so that you get mm -hmm. the trigger a lot faster, right? It's almost uh, immediate. And so now that uh, is currently uh, available, that feature, the the uh, Azure functions uh, with uh, using event subscriptions. And finally, uh, uh, with app services, we talked about app configuration. Uh, I think we did a show on this uh, just a few weeks ago. And there wasn't, you know, an easy way to bolt on app configuration to app services or Azure Functions. <laughs> you still had to write code to read mm -hmm. the app configuration. Now, in preview, they are starting to integrate the two services so that you just go into your configuration tab in um, in in Azure Fun in Azure App Services or Azure Functions, where you today you would configure your environment variables. You can add references to app configuration directly there, and therefore, you know, you can store all your configuration centrally and just pull it down. And for now, uh, this is still in preview and it's limited to just the non-secret type of configuration. You know, app configuration has both secret and non-secret. Uh, the secret ones are backed by Keyvault. That's not there yet, but right now the integration does work for non-secret uh, configuration in app configuration. So I think this is a very good thing uh, for our uh, applications that want to share common configuration and are hosted in app services. So those are the three updates I had. Uh, Nice. Yeah, um, I, I've got two and, and I'll have to confess one of them um, talking about ephemeral OS disks um, using host based encryption. Right. There's customers that want to be able to encrypt, encrypt, encrypt. Can't talk tonight. 
um, encrypt these disks, um, that has gone public preview. But the reason I wanted to call, I, I didn't want to call it out for that so much as I just want to remind everybody that ephemeral disks are ephemeral. Um, that means your data can go away at any time. I've worked with many, many customers over the years that they sort of treat their, their ephemeral disks just like regular persistent disks. And it always comes back to, to bite them at some point. Um, the other one, um, and this is really goes down sort of this availability concept, um, is that live resize for premium and standard SSD disks has gone GA. Again, what this allows you to do is to resize your um, SSD disk without having to take your server on, offline. Right? Historically, you had to do that to resize it. Now, if you need to make it bigger, you know, or I guess theoretically, you could make it smaller if you wanted to as well. Um, you don't have to take anything on, offline. Your, your servers can stay online. So just sort of giving you higher uptime with the same functionality. There, we still have to do something at the operating system level with that, Evan, or how's that hey, You know, that's a good question because the OS doesn't... Yeah, I would imagine something has to be done there. I work on Yeah, you're probably right. You probably have to increase the volumes at that point. But I guess yeah. you could just add new volumes on the existing drive space, right, at that point. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think it would be a reboot. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't no, I don't think know. it is either. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's probably, I don't think the OS is smart enough to just pick up the larger disk that's underneath it. So yeah, you definitely have to do that. Um, but yeah, so so okay, so given that, so let's let's sort of move over to James at this point. James, um, you know, as I sort of mentioned in the intro, you and I work together, but why don't you, you know, share, you know, who you are, what you do here at Microsoft. I love the love the, the CRE heart behind you. That is yeah, awesome. So one of the one of the guys wrote that up in the office and I thought I'd I'll leave that there. <laughs> I, I had to check first to make sure what was on Nothing the else on there. as well as that. But uh, yeah. That's the most prominent thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I've been um, with Microsoft for about six years now um, in the CRE team for about five. Um, we I started off the the Sydney team. I was the first person over here on my lonesome trying to figure out what on earth we do in CRE, um, which is a lot, um, <laughs> many varied spaces. Um, yeah, and initially I, I focused on the communication side of things, the Azure communications. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to travel over to Dublin for a couple of weeks. Um, we've got Michael Ryan over there, who's a, a fantastic um, lead and um, built that um, team over there uh, significantly and has a, a real good insight into how communications work. Um, and his, his team started initially the the teams and the low code no code um, solutions that we use for Azure communications um, and it started off with you know basically we'll, we'll get an email from our system saying we're needed for for communications on on a call and that uh, power automate or I may accidentally say flow it used to be called flow um, so I'll just call it that. yeah yeah I'll excuse myself there because someone will complain if I uh, if I don't call it power automate um, it monitored that email address um, for a person to start with, and then a Teams post would appear um, in our channel that we use for our um, communications uh, synchronization and uh, conversations. And um, and then we'd, we'd go from there. It was really basic. And, and, you know, the Teams post would be with a person's name on it and um, things like that. Um, and then over the years, I've now taken that up and, and developed it quite a bit further. And we use things in teams uh, like incoming webhooks, outgoing webhooks. Um, there's adaptive cards that give you a lot richer experience. We've put buttons onto some of those cards so that the 
um, actions in the team's cards actually go and do some other things in the program in you know in the back end and um, record some logs for us so that we can go back and track and things like that and and almost all of it is done by triggering a, a power automate or a logic app flow um, you know even even when you click those buttons you know all it's doing is is calling the URL for a flow to run um, and take the payload from teams um, and you know significantly the when you're working at lowish volumes um, you know we don't there's not hundreds and hundreds per per minute of calls that we get engaged in for comms uh, it, it's super easy to use um, you know things things like monitor an email box and and look for certain uh, patterns and criteria and then take actions with teams and send other emails and and things like that um, super easy to get started and especially in a team where our focus is communications where we're not there to um, we're, we're not technical people we're not programmers we're not developers we're not engineers um, and these sort of toolings, we need to be able to support ourselves in-house. And this sort of solution, just about anyone can get up to speed and and have that global supportability if if things break um, with most of what we've done. I, I think you you know um, it's sort of ironic because you and I actually were working on a project the last week or so that that plays into this. Is there's a set of emails that come in to some aliases that we need people to be watching for and respond to. These are sort of crisis related emails from um, some of our customers. And um, the problem we've always had is, you know, whoever's on call is supposed to watch it, watch for it, but man, you know, we all get up and, and go grab a bite or, you know, you go, you know, go get some coffee or some tea or something and and you miss it, right? And that's a big deal. And, and so you and I collaborated to actually, to be clear, you did all the hard work. I just sort of said, hey, James, did you do it yet? <laughs> um, but, but you know, you, you took this email, you're able to convert it into a flow, and then now we're going to actually, you know, page our folks automatically from this. Now, they'll have to go then read their email and then respond to it. But now they can sort of be out and about doing whatever they're, you know, doing whatever they got to do, and they'll still get this notice rather than having to sort of be glued to your screen. I mean, and that, I mean, you, the impression I got from you was you, that was very easy for you to set up using Power Automate. Yeah, look, I mean, over the years, we've fundamentally got a few base pro, uh, flows and monitoring that, that's working. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we're now at a point um, where things like this, we can actually sort of bolt that on to to what we've got or, or fork out um, a, a different thread. And with Power Automate and, and Logic Apps, you can call other flows as well. So if you've got something mm, that's already yeah. looking at a mailbox, you don't create another flow to look at the same mailbox. You, you put a condition or a switch statement um, that then just calls another flow that that double da doubles down on that particular so you're component. Sort of, you're sort you of building the, the pieces, subroutines almost, yeah. and it's sort of a traditional parlance. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got a programming background, and, and that is exactly what you do. But that also means that you can then, um, for supportability and things like that, the person who manages exactly what that um, component looks like when it receives an email for a specific piece um, and, you know, if they want to change the content sl slightly that gets post pasted or, you know, make some little tweaks, they can do that and they're only impacting that component. The top level component that actually receives the email and then spins it off, that, that remains fairly static. Um, and building it in that way also means that when you get to a situation where the volume gets too high, so we've had that with a couple of things with our engineering tickets, um, you know, Power Automate and Flow, if you're trying to run hundreds or thousands per second or per minute 
it's not going to fly. Like that's it's just not really not what it's designed for. Either. Yeah, it's not not at all. Um, but then being able to switch to use something like a um, a functions app, um, and within the functions app, you can do all that brute uh, filtering work and still call a flow um, afterwards. So you know if you if you go from something that's running, you know if you're running thousands of it receives thousands of signals, um, but only one in a hundred needs to actually do something, but you need to monitor all that data coming through to pick up those, you can, it's quite easy then to flip over and, and apply some fairly basic programming principles with something like app functions that that can scale and can can handle that volume, but it then only calls that flow, you know, once in a hundred, once in a thousand times. Um, and then again, you keep the low code component, the people who need to manage that and change, you know, little bits about what it does, that's all they need to worry about. They're still operating in that low-code, no-code environment without having to know too much about the, the app function that sits above it that's handling all the bulk as long as they understand the principles of this is this is what it's looking for to trigger your flow. Um, you know, I've written whole websites that actually have flow running in the background. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're clunky and things like that, but um, it makes it really easy if you have to try and connect emails or teams or, or pieces like that, that if you try and do from a, a pure code perspective with you know Azure Active Directory and all the integrations and trusted app services and all that sort of stuff, it gets really complicated really quickly. Uh, James, is there uh, some uh, scenario where you have to connect to Azure resources? You mentioned logs maybe or other Azure resources as part of this uh, Power Automate or Power App uh, and if so, how do you do that? How do you how do you integrate with these Azure resources? So, I mean, predominantly the biggest Azure resource that we we use is is Kusto or um, Data Explorer. I mean, for all our logging and telemetry and all that sort of things, um, I've really got on board with with logging all that telemetry. It's what we use underneath all our Azure services to to log all the telemetry that we need. Um, there's lots of gotchas there. It's really easy to throttle Kusto really quickly if you, if you, you know, we've made lots of mistakes in that area. Um, but you know, that's that's a gradual process. But but even Flow and Power Automate and especially Logic App, um, that can connect to your Azure resources. It's got all that built-in identity pieces within your Logic App where you can define um, your managed identity that lets you connect to a key vault or a um, even a virtual machine or, you know, things like that. Um, you know, it's from a customer perspective, it's it would be, it's super easy to actually look for an email to say, start my VM and go and find the VM and start it for you from an email um, trigger. Um, from what we do though, in the in the live sites and communications, you've got your service health and we send out the, the health, the incident notifications for outages and maintenance and things. It is super easy to subscribe to that with service health events um and and trigger your flows and save the data and do things more than just is email someone or sms something which is built in functionality um but you know if you've got for example 100 subscriptions um and you want to be able to have a consolidated dashboard you can actually use logic apps to receive all those service health alerts for all those subscriptions that you can set up with a script across all of them uh, and they'll all go to one place they'll all trigger the same um, Azure function or the, sorry, the logic app, um, save it to a SQL, write it to Kusto, you know, all those sorts of things that, that you can then drive websites, dashboards, you know, all that sort of thing from. 
Yeah, James, when you were mentioning the, um, uh, I think you got function apps, but like, so how do you kind of like figure out where you're going to use like the power automate side versus the logic app? Sounds like some of the hardcore yep. stuff, like more heavy stuff you put on logic. Is that the way to think about it? Or so, so we started out with power automate and flow. I mean that, that and this, this has been a natural progression where we've we've developed ourselves and we've fallen into pit holes and we want to get better ourselves with reliability and, and our own alerting and monitoring. Um, the biggest thing I've found um, reason to use Logic Apps is it's got the Azure built-in monitoring, alerting, runs failing, you know, run latency go going over certain amounts. You can configure that with your um, Azure Monitor and Azure Alerts, and that's built in so that you can send yourself emails and SMSs if your processes are failing. Um, whereas the Power Automate doesn't have that. Um, it's got, you know, it'll send you an email once a week and say, hey, 20 of your flows have failed this week. Um, doesn't help you in a, in a real world situation where you're running um, processes that other people depend on. So, I mean, that was the real trigger for us to move to Logic App. We are doing predominantly now, most of our development is in Logic Apps purely for that reason. You know, we keep getting to the point where, oh, if this breaks, who knows about it? Who's going to fix it? Um, you can't wait for people to start complaining that something's not working. You know, when I'm hearing uh, you describe all those various tools that you're using, James, uh, as a developer, I'm getting uh, like worried about the <laughs> developer, about the developer experience or the developer environment that I'm going to have to set up. Right? I'm already thinking like, okay, I'm going to have a power, uh, you know, power apps, uh, whatever studio, uh, maybe a logic apps uh, kind of uh, editor, and then VS Code for functions. And God only knows what else. So, uh, uh, you know, is there like a silver bullet for all of this, or am Look, I like still not too far it, off? It, <laughs> I mean, I, I, exactly what you've said is sort of the progression we've gone through and learned our painful lessons along the way. Um, if I was starting from scratch, um, Power Automate and Flow is fantastic to get started, to have a play, see what it can do, work out how connections and things work. Um, really easy to go through and do that sort of thing. Um, if you and you know proof of concepts and things, but if you really want to try and push this to the next level, I would be looking at the integrated service environments um, for Logic App that lets you define your environment with how many virtual machines you want behind it and powering it and auto scale and things like that. Um, if you're going to do things at scale, if you've just got a couple, then you know the the pay-as-you-go consumption model is fine. Um, this is, again, where we've been caught out, where all of a sudden you've got a flow that runs 100 times every minute and you're paying on the consumption and all of a sudden someone taps you on the shoulder and says, do you realise your uh, consumption's gone up just a little bit over the last few days? Um, and, you know, and that's where the, the ISE environment, even though it's a little bit more expensive to set up, um, you control exactly how much that's going to cost because it's a flat cost. You're paying for the virtual machines that are sitting underneath it. It also makes it a lot easier to set up your consistent alerting and monitoring because you do that at the at that whole resource level instead of having to do it um, granular and different at each time. So, I mean, if I was going to start off now, I'd say, as I said, Power Automate to start with, get used to it, play around, do things like monitoring your own email box, playing around with some some rules to move things around to different folders, Teams integration, um, figure out sort of how it works. And, and those concepts are 100% transportable over to how Logic Apps um, operates. 
but the Logic Apps really gives you a lot more structure around alerting, monitoring, cost optimization, all those sort of things that you can control a lot better. Um, and then, as you said, with the the power, the function apps and things, you've got to make a really careful decision when you move to that because that's a big change. And you know, the the supportability that you need to have available um, to support anything like that means you you need a base level of some coding experience to to be able to support that. So. Um, and as soon as you do that, you start moving into, okay, how do we do um, our, our deployment chains? How, you know, CICD and, and source codes and all, you know, that becomes um, a lot more important as soon as you make that big jump. Um, and, you know, a, a careful decision again. Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the thing, James, that, that I thought was interesting about sort of the journey that, that you've been on and we as sort of a broader team is on is, because, and I think you hit on it earlier, even though we were sort of joking, you know, about, you know, who's developer and who's not a developer, right? That's such a, a murky term these days, right? But but I think the reality is our, our job is not to sit around and write code. Our job is to run LifeSite, right? Our job is to send communications, right? Um, and, you know, and so the ability to start small and, and do some of this testing really has been a big enabler for us. And obviously, you know, you're doing much, much more advanced stuff, you know, in 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 a lot of cases, but it, but we're still spanning the continuum today, right? As I look at what you're using and and what the broader team is doing as well. And and you know, these are for mission critical things from our side. We it's a big deal when our alerts don't fire internally. Yeah. And look, it's super easy to fail fast and and to yeah. to make your changes and adapt and and respond really quickly to um to things. It, I mean, there is a downside to that is, you know, if you if you build this sort of um, environment, that fast fail thing leads to organic growth and organic growth means you end up um, in, in a place that's very hard to, how do we document this? It's organically grown over the last six months with people playing and adding things and these really great new features, but then you've got to go back and, yeah. and sort of try and keep it clean. So, that, I mean, there's always a gotcha here um, and there's always an absolute um, need for the rigor that comes with a programming background of, of, you know, how do I set this up? How do I structure this? How do I do even just, you know, access permissions, security, yeah. you know, all that sort of thing. You, you've really got to think about it. Um, it. It's easy to to break yourself into jail as well um, in, in some of these things. So you do need to have a little bit of oversight and you don't want to go into it completely blind, um, even though it is really easy to get started. You know, even simple things like we we're talking about calling other functions using the um, using the URL, you should really put some security principles in there. You know, you should you know add add an auth token when you send the request and make sure you check that auth token at the other end because um, you don't have to do that. You can just whack the URL in there, um, but you just got to remember these things are open to the internet. You got to be careful. Internet's a scary place. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. No, this is this is great, James. Um, you know, uh, Kale Sajid, any any last questions for for James? No, I think this has been a, an excellent uh, primer on how to do low code, no code for some of these <laughs> edge case scenarios that uh, you described, James. And I think uh, I think there's almost every company has a department like like that, right? That, yeah. that can that can use. I mean, I think that's fair to say everybody has uh, a need for something like that. And you know, we typically string together, you know, some scripts or uh, web pages uh, with ugly code uh, and whatnot behind it, 
yeah, when there's a much more elegant way to do it uh, using uh, some of the tools that you just described. So thank you for sharing that. I, I was waiting to hear, James, that like when we're using Teams, that you, people are responding with emojis and we had like custom emojis, like freakouts and stuff like that. That would be awesome. <laughs> well, there's, there's, I've, I've been playing around with the um, bot framework built into Teams, which is all in yeah. code. And the situation came up is, well, what if the bot pastes or, or creates a card or a chat that you don't want? And um, one of the, the neat things I did was if, if you reply back with an angry face to one of the bots, uh, the bot goes and deletes whatever it was that you angry faced. Oh, that's um, so awesome. <laughs> I like that. That's <laughs> excellent. That's excellent. I'm going to start I'm going to start replying to angry face to everything, just hoping, <laughs> hoping these chats that fill up my day you know, go away. Um, yeah, I mean, any last sort of guidance i mean you gave some really good guidance to people about sort of you know start small you know play around learn and then you know in terms of the growth path any last sort of thoughts you want to leave the audience with oh look you know the lessons i've learned is, is do some documentation while you're doing it um it, it's really easy to build these things and, and it looks nice and simple with with you know flows and diagrams and drag and drop but as soon as you start you know having modules and, and forking things off things can get really complicated. And, and if you've got a programming backward background, it's actually really easy to make very complicated flows and logic apps um, if you apply that same thinking, program thinking. And other people will look at it and go, oh, I, I do not understand what you've done here. You've got loops and switches and conditions and, and things in there. So, you know, do some documentation while you're going. Um, if you if you wait until after you've done it with the organic growth, you you'll find yourself in a world of pain like like I have many times. Yeah, no, that's I think that's that's that is that is awesome advice, right? Because that's that is exactly the trap that everybody's fallen into, right? You sort of throw something together and then later you're like, oh, I don't remember how this is supposed to work, right? Much less show somebody I wonder, else. I, I should know that I think about it, James. Can you write unit tests for this thing? <laughs> <laughs> question i don't know can't, for logic apps i bet you can i don't know if you can for power automate yeah it's really hard uh, the, the whole you know testing environment ppe progression it's really hard to simulate when you get into this into this world you've and you've got to think about that up front you can't you can't retrofit any of this stuff um it, it, it is something to think about but you know generally most of the teams or the the folks that are looking at this they don't want that. That's part of the rigor and where they get stuck is, you know, you go to your programming team and say, hey, I need this. And they tell you it's going to be six to 12 months before they can look at it um, yeah. because of some of those rigors. So, you know, m maybe what you're doing, if you need to look at unit testing and things like that, maybe this isn't the right approach and you should actually be going to a more structured, um, you know, programming developer team uh, to do that work. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it is all really this continuum, right? This, There's no one solution to any of this. It's sort of what you need and, and what your business requirements are, right? And what your yeah. skills are as a team, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you've got a team of a bunch of people that aren't hardcore developers, writing a bunch of code and unit tests is going to be hard. If you've got a team <laughs> of a bunch of developers, they're going to do that in their sleep, right? So, yeah, yeah. no, that's a, yeah. that's a really good point. Okay, well, no, this is great. James, uh, you know, always, you know, it is so nice to talk to you when we don't have somebody on the other side of the phone yelling or screaming or somebody, you know, something's down somewhere. So it's always, it's very nice to see you in a positive situation. So thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you. you. See y'all. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the creative commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.